And so, you know, that question is the same thing that turned me around from the helicopter crash. Is what's great about this is, you know, Mike died in my arms, not instead of a stranger's arms. And that, you know, people who were there to care for the guys, uh, it was done at the highest of levels from all kinds of people. And I was one of those people. Um, I also saved two people's lives that day. But see, when you get caught up in your drama, you, you forget about the good parts. So by asking that question, what's great about this, it definitely turns you around, but you got to let go of the drama stories. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials, here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Oh boy, have we got an incredible podcast this week. Kurik Ashley is known as The Transformer. He is one of the most in-demand first-class speakers and success coaches in the world. He's recognized as one of the premier experts in personal and professional development, self-discovery, and peak performance. For over 30 years, Fortune 500 companies and major corporations around the world, such as Apple, Seagate, Schwarzkopf, Western Hotels, the Australian Royal Air Force, and Carlton United Brewery, have hired Kurik to teach them tactical success strategies that have produced awe-inspiring results. His list of private clients include Hollywood film and TV stars, movie directors, producers and cinematographers, a quintuple platinum rock band, hit music composers, top business leaders, oil executives in Kuwait, Olympic gold medalists, professional athletes and sports teams, and the list goes on. Working in over 17 countries around the world, giving up to 100 presentations, workshops and seminars a year, and through hundreds of media appearances, Kurik has impacted the lives of millions of people around the world. A good old favourite of many of ours, Anthony Robbins says, Kurik, you are the truly the embodiment of the word outstanding. Meeting Kurik, whether it's in person, through his books or his programs, he ignites the desire in you to want to live your life to the fullest and he powerfully gives you the tools to do it. He has an uncanny ability to connect with every person in the room and every listener in his podcast interviews. You'll walk away feeling as if he was speaking directly to you. His passionate, raw honesty will take your breath away, and his infinite ability to love will stir the depths of your soul and enable you to realize your greatness. He is the number one international best-selling author of How Would Love Respond?, Within four hours of the book being released, it took the number one spot on Amazon.com for hot new releases and movers and shakers, and number four on Barnes and Nobles. I know you're going to really enjoy this week's podcast. I feel very honored to share with you Kurik's story from, as he said, going from a Hollywood, uh, uh, a helicopter train wreck in Hollywood, right through to almost wanting to take his life on a daily basis to now being one of the most extraordinary souls you'll ever get to meet or hear. I cannot wait to hear your takeaways from this podcast. And I sincerely hope that every single one of you, if this is your new time to the self-love podcast, welcome. What a show to start with. And I can honestly say with hand on heart, the fact that Kurek works so closely with a topic so dear to my heart, the power of love. I don't know about you, but there's just this really beautiful connection And I feel very humbled and inspired and delighted to bring to you the extraordinary Kurik Ashley. 
please place, place your comments and feedback onto the Facebook page, Kim Morrison or my 28 page or the beautiful Kim Morrison 28 Instagram page, or you can go to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. Please share this and all of you that give a five-star rating and give any feedback, I promise you, I read every single one. I am honored to be on this ride with you. And I thank you, my beautiful self-love podcast listener, for being a part of my world and allowing me to share with you special souls like Kurik. Enjoy. As you can hear, I am very excited this week to share with you a pretty special human, actually, as you can hear. He has done a lot in his life. He's certainly been an inspiration for a lot of people ranging from maybe what we could call the everyday mom, the everyday human, right through to top Olympian athletes. Kurik Ashley, you have been a superstar, for want of a better word, and I am so delighted to welcome you to the Self Love Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Kim. We've known each other a very long time, and uh, this is, is a supreme honor for me. Oh, look, it is such an honor for me. I've, I've seen you over the years, probably over two and a half decades now, following the work that you do, and it's been an absolute, I would say, an eye-opener. And for those that haven't had the pleasure or privilege of getting to know your story, is there any way you could give us a brief overview as to who you are, a little bit about your background, but most importantly, maybe the threads that have held you together through the highs and lows? Oh, sure. Um, well, I started, uh, I guess, my illustrious career when I was 12 years old and became a professional actor. Um, I started on stage in Chicago, and I got to work with guys like George Went from Cheers and Jim Belushi and, and whatever. I had lied about my age. I told him I was 18 years old to get in to Second City Theater. And then uh, when I was 18 years old, I left for Hollywood and wound up doing 38 films and two films with John Travolta and worked with Sylvester Stallone and Russell Crowe and all that stuff. And um, in 1989, I was doing the movie Delta Force 2 with Chuck Norris. Uh, and by the way, that year I just finished Lockup with Sylvester Stallone. So here I'm on the highest of highs, you know, working with two of my icons, you know. And um, when we were in the Philippines doing Delta Force 2, uh, some of my best friends, including my best friend Mike Graham, who's the key grip, was on the show. And Don Marshall, the lighting director, and Jeff Brewer, one of the sun guys. So, you know, we're having a time of our lives. And working with Chuck is really an awesome guy. And um, during the filming of the movie, uh, I was involved in a helicopter crash where um, five of my friends died. And uh, Mike was uh, 29 years old when he died in my arms. Um, he was on fire when I pulled him out of the wreck. And, um, you know, for the next two and a half years, I had a gun in my mouth every night and drugs up my nose and smoking cigarettes and drinking booze. And well, I wasn't partying. I was just trying to kill myself. Uh, what I say is, <laughs> you know, Thank God I'm not a success at everything in life. But, um, you know, really, you know, to save my own life, I, you know, I'd already been into personal development, Kim, for a long time. Um, but the helicopter wreck kind of pulled my Superman cape off me. And um, so I had to really get myself back into it and work on myself. And um, one day I unscrewed a broom pole out of a broom and held it over my head like a samurai warrior in my backyard in Los Angeles. And, cut a line in the sand. And I said, once I step over this, I'm done. You know, um, I'm done with the drugs. I'm done with the cigarettes. I'm done being depressed. 
And uh, I stepped over that line and I gave up cocaine. I gave up cigarettes. I gave up alcohol abuse. I gave all my guns away, not to just people wandering on the street, but I was a little more responsible than that. And, um, you know, my journey since then has been this, this moment from that decision of, of change where, you, you know, you just go, that's it. I'm done. And, you know, it's, it's been in a, a step-by-step process since then of just really appreciating all the moments. I mean, you know, just cause I went through a helicopter crash doesn't mean your life's not going to ever have other catastrophes, which it, it's had, you know, and, and it's about brushing yourself off, picking yourself up and, and starting down your journey again, no matter where you are. And it's been an amazing life. That's all I can say is, uh, you know, because coming down here as a spirit, I wanted to experience all of life, not just the fluffy, happy bits, but all of it. That's probably why we go to movies that depress you or make you laugh or cry is that as a human, we want to feel those things. Um, it, even as hard as some of them are to go through. So that's, I guess the, the gist of my story, but I've been doing personal development and teaching, uh, well, probably 40 something years now. It's hard to say. I think I started at one, <laughs> but no, I'm kidding. And um, yeah, um, that's why when you said we've known each other two and a half decades, I was like, yeah, well, we're both like four then, right? <laughs> I'd love to think that, but you know, it's it's it, it always baffles me. I always get goosebumps up the back of my neck whenever I hear you tell your story, and you know, it's 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 pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's phenomenal on all levels. But I just love to go back. That, that I know you're saying the helicopter crash wasn't the only catastrophe, but it was a pretty big one. To hold your yep. friend in your arms, what is going through your mind? Many of us, thankfully, don't have that. Uh, scenario occur, but there are a lot of people who have a lot of tragedies and holding loved ones as they pass. What actually happened to you in that moment? Well, if we back it up just a, a, a moment before then, actually, Kim, is that um, Mike was the last guy was to get out of, to get out of the helicopter. You know, I'd already pulled a bunch of people out, and um, as I went back to get into the chopper, it burst into flames. And it was fully engulfed and everybody was trying to pull me away from the wreck. And, and I just made that decision that I'm not leaving my friend, you know. And so I climbed in to a fully engulfed uh, helicopter and um, uh, pulled him out and carried him out. He was on fire when I carried him out. And, you know, then we got in the back. I got him in the back of a car because there was a whole caravan of vehicles bringing the injured to hospitals. And... Um, Mike was laying across my lap. He was burnt to a crisp and I was giving him mouth to mouth and CPR. I brought him back five times. The sixth time, um, the only way I can describe it, it's like having a, a breeze of air flow through your body. You know, uh, I call it that he rushed me. He, he, he went through me on his way out, but a part of him, um, attached to me. And so, um, for the next two and a half years, uh, I had visitations. I saw Mike on a regular basis, but I, I wasn't the only person who saw him, but I was certainly the person who saw him the most. And, um, I, you know, he, he would have really been angry with me if I would have kept him alive because he was so badly injured and he would have had limbs missing and the rest of those things, you know. But he, he, 
he wanted to say goodbye to his fiance because he didn't get to see her, um, you know, because we we're in a foreign country at that point. And so it took me two and a half years to figure out how to get him to do that. And finally, I told him one night, I said, you got to go visit her in her dreams because, you know, she won't be so rational. She won't be so human. And uh, she called me at 6 a.m. the next morning and said, Mike, stand at the end of bed. He said, you sent, sent him. And we said our goodbyes and said everything we need to say and uh, gave each other a hug. And then um, I told him that uh, he has to go now, that uh, he can't stay here. You know, the only way he can get to wherever he's supposed to go next is he has to, he has to go through the process. And I, I promised him that he'd be okay. And so I did an out-of-body experience. And I escorted him through this tunnel into the light. And I hugged him. And uh, he turned into these brilliant bits of light, like uh, fireflies, little by little. And the last thing I saw was his eyes and his smile. And um, he went to the other side. But touching that light, because um, I was instructed not to go into it because I, I didn't belong there yet. But I did feel it, and it was, um, I don't know where I can describe it, it was warm without temperature, and it was bright without squinting. Um, it was just pure love. It was it was a creator. And I kept come back with, um, I don't know, like profound kind of knowledge and teaching since then, I guess. And that's where I, I operate from. Do you, do you think on one level that you were chosen for this path to learn these profound teachings, to have a different insight so that you could carry the light? Do you think you were chosen? Oh, absolutely. It's been my whole life. It's, it's you know, Kim, it's always, uh, you know, I believe you'd be the same. It's, um, you know, we, we get it in our system that it's not what we do. It's actually who we are. And it's not always an easy job. I mean, it wasn't easy for Martin Luther King and it wasn't easy for Gandhi and it certainly wasn't easy for Jesus or Buddha or anybody, you know, that has had to, um, Elijah, the prophet, you know, that you, you, you know your purpose and your mission and you got to do it even when it's tough. Um, even when, um, you know, because I, I go through catastrophe after catastrophe and I just say it's the creator's way of giving me better seminar content. Um, uh, and and more content for my books. It's it's just one of those things. It's what my life's been about. But it also shows people that if we can do it, so can they. Yeah, I, I would love to ask you about that a bit more. Uh, so many people go through life with catastrophe or tragedy or challenge, even in a minor way. Some people seem to brush themselves off, pick themselves up, one foot in front of the other, keep moving forward choose to learn from it and grow from it. But sadly, in my experience, there's people who take a lot longer to get through that or may never get through that. Why do you think that's the case? Because they keep telling the, dr the drama story. You know, people love their drama and they, they get attention from being in drama and they perceive that attention is love, which it's not. And the challenge with that is that you have to get in more and more drama to keep getting that attention because after all, the old attention wears off because, you know, we've already heard that drama story. So they keep getting themselves in worse and worse situations. But it's that um, story that they keep telling, those disempowering stories 
Um, I'm the rape victim. You know, I'm the incest survivor. I'm the this and that. You know, my parents were alcoholics. That creates what I call drama glue, and it keeps them stuck in their story. And, you know, we all have people in our lives that every time you get around them, it's all they want to do is tell you their drama stories, and then we're stuck listening to it. And then when you leave, you, you feel like you got to take a shower <laughs> because it's all that drama glue all over you. Um, but you have to stop telling the disempowering stories and instead turn around to asking one of the most powerful questions ever, which is, what's great about this? Um, and it's because the question changes our focus and whatever we focus on expands. And so as an example, when uh, my father, he had a heart attack, you know, and I'm, I'm my father's only child. My mom raised seven. She was a little more friendly, um, <laughs> but um, she killed me, by the way, if I, if you ever heard me say that. Um, she, uh, my dad, though, um, you know, got, had a heart attack shoveling snow in Chicago as commonly happens as they are operate working on him, you know, cause they found out he needed open heart surgery. Turns out he had lung cancer. Um, they gave him six months to live. He made it three days. Um, I didn't even get time to get back in time to see him. I did though. Uh, I was talking to him every day, you know, since he first had the heart attacks, there's a number of months that's gone by. And um, you know, that, I called, uh, I got a call in the middle of the night from a hospice nurse at my dad's house. My stepmom was too distraught to talk. And she said, Hey, your, your father's going to pass away. He's still going to take a turn for the worse. He's going to die tonight. And I said, ma'am, I just talked to him a few hours ago. My dad's fine. Um, he's just tired. And she said, no, sir, he's going to die tonight. So I said, please let me talk to my dad. And she said, he's too weak. And I said, he doesn't need to speak. He just needs to listen to me. And I said, dad, I will always love you. I will always make you proud. Don't suffer. Don't struggle. Just go to peace, Dad. Yeah. My dad uh, smiled. He mouthed to my stepmom that it's me. He knew it was me. He closed his eyes. He went to sleep. Ten minutes later, I got a call. My dad passed away. I, that was the last conversation he'd ever had. You know, he died peacefully. As soon as I hung up the phone, I asked myself, what's great about this? Uh, my dad died when I was 44, not four years old or four months old. I had a great relationship with my dad. He didn't suffer. Um, you know, my dad saw me as a success. Uh, and uh, my dad even took me out of his will. And, and people said, well, what's great about that? And I said, well, my dad knew I was a success. I didn't need his money. Um, and my stepmom, when I asked her, I, you know, as I was talking to her about it, she said, I, I didn't know how to tell you that because it sounds weird that, but that's what he said that you would understand. And I said, it's the, it's the most wonderful compliment ever that my dad raised me where he knew he didn't have to worry about me after his passing. And so, you know, that question is the same thing that turned me around from the helicopter crash is what's great about this is, you know, Mike died in my arms, not instead of a stranger's arms. And that, you know, people who were there to care for the guys, uh, it was done at the highest of levels from all kinds of people. And I was one of those people. Um, I also saved two people's lives that day. But see, when you get caught up in your drama, you, you forget about the good parts. So by asking that question, what's great about this, it definitely turns you around. But you got to let go of the drama stories. I really appreciate that. And I think it's something we can all ask ourselves in every moment. Maybe not in the throes of the emotional 
uh, high right in that moment. It's hard maybe to, to say that, but how long do you think it takes? Do you think there's a choice between deciding when to see what's great about it as opposed to wallowing or feeling or being in it? Is there a difference between feeling it as opposed to the victimization of it? How do you, or is there to you a secret formula on how to give yourself that time, that energy, that love, and that space to process the tragedies, the dramas, the consequences of things that occur? That's a great question, Jim. I, I would say is that, you know, is a, you don't want to not feel it either because, you know, like, you know, as you can hear, I still get emotional about my dad. It just means I loved him. And so you don't want to rob yourself of that. You know, my dad, um, you know, he's old, he was old school. He grew up in the Great Depression. Well, I remember when his mom died, my grandmother, he didn't even cry at the funeral. And I always wondered, you know, what age do you get to, you know, then when you don't have fear and you don't have doubt and you don't have insecurity and, and I found out my dad was feeling all those things. He just never showed it because he thought that's what a strong dad's supposed to do. Unfortunately, though, that's how men crack is that's why women actually live longer because men internalize things and they don't let it out. Um, women can all get together in a circle and they can all be talking at the same time. And men, we can't figure out how is anybody listening, but it's really they're purging energy. That's why, you know, when a woman talks to a guy, he tries to fix it. She doesn't want him fixing it. She just wants to voice it and let it out and be heard. And so, you know, I've learned to let it out. And so, but I think, you know, the time to ask what's great about this is immediately, because as an example is my dad, you know, and, and my mom, my mom's gone as well. Um, they, they gave me life, you know, gave me life to live the best, most amazing life ever. So I honor them by doing that. And anytime we waste on throwing it away on stuff that, you know, won't change the situation. It is nothing more than a waste. But it doesn't mean that I don't have the feel and I don't have the time. I mean, my son, who's nine now, is a byproduct of my mom dying of cancer. And her last words, again, I was with my mom for her last words, and she made me promise to have kids. Um, and I did. I said, I promised, Mom. And I said, but you got to stay around to see him. She goes, don't piss me off. Just have them. I'm like, okay, calm down. I'm good. You know, I promise. And she said, I don't want you here. You know, I just don't want you here as this is going to happen. I, I'd rather you leave. And so I, I head back to LA. And as I got there, um, I got a call in the middle of the night that my mom died. And I again asked what's great about this and then came home back to Australia. And two weeks later, got my wife pregnant. Um, one try, because you don't want to piss off your mom. Uh, make sure you keep the promise. And that's my son. And so every time I see him, I, I wish that my mom and dad could be here to meet their grandson, but that ain't going to happen. So I honor them by living my life to the very fullest. I miss them. I feel them. Um, I have moments of tears missing them, but not at the point, Kim, where it, it, it takes away the joy of my life or missing the experiences of my life because it's just too valuable. It's just too, you know, Mike was 29 years old when he died. So if you think that you're guaranteed 80, that's, that's a promise nobody can keep. If you're lucky enough to get to be 80, God bless you. But um, with all the things, all the death I've been close to in life, that um, I just live very present in the moment. I'm not willing to throw it away on stuff that I can't change. 
There's another question that you ask that I've asked ever since I saw your book released. How would love respond? Do you know how many times I use that when I'm in the throes of the emotional aspects? So what's great about this to me comes after the fact, but how would love respond has been one of the most powerful questions that I've asked myself when I'm in the throes of something emotional or scary or frightening or judgmental or whatever. My question is the title of your first book how would love respond? How has that come about? And do you find you still use it yourself? Absolutely. And, you know, my, my beautiful partner, her name's Julie Hill, by the way, she's been to one of your programs, Kim. She's a raving fan of yours. And she says, you know, Kimmy says that. And I said, oh, I, I'm honored. Um, she goes, I wonder if she got that from you. I, I would like to say I'm the owner of it, uh, but as you know, nobody really creates anything. It's just always been here. I was doing a coaching session uh, with a client of mine, and I was talking about identity is, you know, the most powerful two words in English languages are I am, and it becomes your identity. And that in the scriptures uh, of Mary Magdalene that she wrote uh, that were in the Dead Sea Scrolls, she doesn't refer to Jesus as the Messiah. She refers to him as the love. And the Bible says, if you do not know love, you do not know God, because God is love. You know, because love is the most powerful force in the universe. And I thought, you know, well, and Jesus said, even the least among you uh, can do all that I have done and even greater things. And he said, it's not a sin to consider yourself one with and equal to God. And I started putting all those kind of components together. And I thought, well, imagine if you identified yourself as love, you know, the most powerful force in the universe is how would you, resp how would you respond differently to everything in life? Like, would you allow yourself to stay fat or broke or lonely or depressed? You know, because that's not how love responds. Love would want you to have everything you want in life and for everybody else to have everything they want in life, just not at the expense of you. And so I use that question every day. Um, it's changed my life. Matter of fact, it was the question that actually wrote the book. As soon as that question hit my head, I knew I had to write the book. And I'm not, it's not my natural talent to write. So I thought it was going to take me three or four months to write. It took me four years to get it out. And then within four hours, became a number one bestseller. And I'm, I'm honored it's been out about 11 or 12 years now and still a bestseller. It's um, the question itself is the book. It's just about how do you get to understand the power of that question and all your choices in life. And, you know, as you're asking me earlier, Kimmy, is that the uh, love wouldn't want you to suffer. You know, love would want you to live the best. And, you know, um, my parents would want me to live the best. And Mike would want me to honor his life and go for it. Because I could tell you, if, if Mike had a chance to be alive right now, he'd be saying, dude, um, I know what that's like. Don't don't throw it away being upset over me. Live it to the very fullest. You got a shot I didn't get, you know, and you've lived all these years since the helicopter crash. I'm, I'm honored that you've made it so fulfilling. And so it's a game changer. You know, those two questions alone, if you just ask them on a regular basis is how would love respond and what's great about this will change your perception of everything in life. And the truth is that there is no truth. There's only interpretation. It's only a perception. So choose perceptions that empower you and make you feel great and make you feel appreciative of life.
and that's the life that you get. You are a special soul and, yeah, that's probably been one of the biggest reasons and things why I have done so much work around the subject of love. And and when I was going through some therapy and counselling with a beautiful 90-year-old French psychologist and spiritualist, she said to us one day, she sat there with my husband and I going through a tough time and she said, mm, do you love this man? I went, yes, very crossly. She said, mm, do you love this woman? And he goes, of course. And she goes, well, when there's love, there is no problem. And I almost called my book that title, When There Is Love, There Is No Problem. Mm. You so eloquently speak of love in such a powerful way that inspires all of us that no matter how high or low, if we can maintain that golden thread running throughout us and call it love or shape it to be the meaning of love or however that looks, how would you describe or what would your definition of self-love be then? Well, um, again, as a, I'm not, by the way, I'm not a religious person. My mom was Jewish. My dad was Christian. I was just really confused. Um, the, the Bible, again, says if you do not know love, you do not know God because God is love. Well, if we want to become one with the source, one with the creator, you know, one with the universe, then that would be through self-love. It's the natural order. You know, life has to keep expressing itself through life and evolution. And the only way we'll ever evolve is through loving ourselves. And that's why every morning we'll wake up, I, I ask a few questions. You know, I call them my, my morning power questions. One of them is, what am I grateful for? Because gratitude is your way to show love for everything that you have. Then my next question is, is what do I love more about my son today than I did yesterday? And then uh, what do I love more about myself today than I did yesterday? And I also do mirror work where I look myself in the eye and for, you know, 30 seconds every morning is convince that guy I'm looking at that, I, that you love him. Um, because uh, our whole mission down here is to, it's an ongoing process. The definition of self-love for me, it's just a road that's always under construction because there's always another level of it. To find more and more self-love for yourself, I think, before we got here in the form, you know, we were already perfect because we were one with the universe. And then we come into this fragile, uh, you know, temporary container. And, and there's all kinds of components to it, fear and doubt. But I, I believe that the universe gave us those that if we right, it gives you appreciation. You know, to know that you're going to die gives you appreciation for life and makes you live it to the fullest. And then some people, as you said, Kim is, you know, they they play small, they they play guarded, and the rest of those things, saying, "Oh my God, I'm going to die, so I don't want to go out there and do anything just in case something goes wrong." Um, but they're missing the whole essence of it. So I, I just, for me, self love is self discovery. It's it's personal development. It's investing in yourself. Um, the word investment, it's right there in the word, I-N-V-E-S-T-M-E-N-T-I, invest in me. It's the best investment you can ever make. It's in your own personal development, your own self-love. And it's one of those things that I work on every day. And whenever I <laughs> find myself, um, you know, being off the rails or, you know, angry or whatever, I mean, I don't know what it is, you know, how life gets you sometimes, I, it, to me, it's just, it's the next part of myself to work on. Instead of beating myself up and uh, saying how flawed I am, I, I, I go, great, now I know it's the next piece to work on it. You know, it's, it's my spiritual guide. You bring up a really good point. 
that we're constantly working on ourselves. I call us all whips, works in progress. And I often wonder, unless you do get to the status of maybe Jesus or Buddha or Abdullah or whatever it is that you see as source, universe, God, are we and will we continue to be a work in progress in this human form, in your opinion? I, I think not only in the human form, I, you know, the, um, the universe itself, the totality of the universe has to follow the same laws as everything in the universe because it's all the stuff that's in the universe that actually makes up universe. I mean, uni meaning one. It's the oneness of everything. And that law is that you either evolve or you dissolve. You either grow or you decay. And so the universe itself has to keep evolving. And otherwise, it too will dissolve. And so it's an it's it's a work in progress uh, that you're always there, and that it's our imperfectness that makes us perfect human beings. Because if the universe wanted us to be perfect, well, it would have just made us that way. I think it'd be kind of boring that we're all standing around staring at each other, not very much to do. Um, so, in you know, if if it looked at us as a mistake, like wait a minute, you know, I made a mistake. Well, then why did it just correct it? I mean, that would be evolution. The universe itself keeps evolving. So why didn't it evolve humans to finally be perfect, to not be flawed, to not have problems? And, you know, um, I'm not being blasphemous or anything because I have no religion. Um, a lot of times I feel religion is, you know, the, uh, uh, the thing that kind of takes away people from the oppression of being spiritual is because when we say, I am this or I am that, well, we're separating ourselves from the oneness again. And that's just, again, not being blasphemous or insulting anybody. But Jesus was a, a person. He was in the form. And yes, he definitely knew what he was talking about. His teachings were spot on. And so was Buddha. But Buddha was a, a wealthy prince. He wasn't a god. He never said he was. Uh, and he surrendered all of his wealth to go find out about life. And he had to see suffering. And the rest of things. But, you know, um, in his ashram in India, where a portion of his bones are, because a lot of his bones were distributed to other sects of the Buddhist communities, you know, um, in it, they found gold trinkets and jewels and stuff, not like King Tut, but little things. But if Buddha talked about, you know, that you got to suffer, which, by the way, he didn't, um, he said detachment. He goes, don't get attached to it. Um, you can enjoy it. Just don't get attached to it. And when he uh, comatosed himself after starving for 40 days and 40 nights, even his own disciples left him. They were like, you're crazy, man. I'm not doing this stuff. But he came out of that when he was nursed back to health um, to realize that darkness that he saw, you know, wasn't clouds and it wasn't floating around playing a harp. And it scared the daylights out of him. And that's when he said, you know, there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way is, you know, make sure you're out there enjoying everything you got and appreciate it at the highest levels. And that was the attainment of Buddha. It wasn't really his name. It was like uh, nirvana to attain Buddha, to attain that high level of fulfillment. So I think it's one of those things we're always working on, but Buddha was working on it all the way up until he passed away in his 80s. You think then, now as a dad, in this present moment of a beautiful nine-year-old boy, mm. If there was one thing that you would love to leave him with or the legacy of your life and your purpose and your meaning, what would that be? 
uh, well, it's kind of a two-pronged answer. One is that um, I tell him every day, you know, how much I love him and that he's the best thing that ever happened in my life. He's the uh, most successful thing I've ever done. And I, the lesson I teach him every day is, is to enjoy this life and enjoy our time together. And that people and, you know, kids in school who are, don't want to be friends with them is go find people who do want to be friends with you, you know. Um, and people want to try to ruin your day is just walk away from them and just have a good time. And if nobody wants to hang out with you, have a good time by yourself. But by the way, that will attract people to you is when you're having a good time, no matter what is the purpose of this lifetime is to enjoy it. And if you enjoy this lifetime, the highest at the end of it, you look back and you go, that was awesome. You're a winner. And if you look back at this lifetime and you go, what was I thinking? I threw it away to feeling bad and sad and angry and all that stuff. It's stuff that I couldn't change, including sometimes it's family members. Then, you know, you lost. You didn't get it. The purpose of your life is to enjoy it. And these people who are working these crazy hours to make money so that one day I'll get to do this and I'll do that. Um, you miss it. Because when you're going to sacrifice time at your family and time at your friends and all those things, sacrifice means to kill. It doesn't come back after you kill it. So enjoy it now and have an abundant mind, you know, which means I want this and that, not this or that. So I want to have the time with my son, time to work on myself, time to be healthy and fit and make the business successful and make the wealth. Why not? I mean... It's an abundant universe, and it's all borrowed. you got to give it all back. So you might as well borrow the good stuff, and including you know all the joy and happiness. And that's the one thing I work with him on every day. And you know he, he loves school now, and he, says, he said to me even this after his last report card, he said, Dad, you know what? It's everything you always say. It's always about the attitude that I go in with. And I go, see, that's my boy. I think they're such amazing teachers, aren't they? And they give us such beautiful um, insights into not only their world, but more importantly, I think the gift of being a parent oh, is yeah. the insight they give to our world. And I, I feel exactly the same and, and get very humbled every day, every moment um, of looking at my now adult children. And I just want to thank you for reminding us all of the beauty of what mm. it is to really be a privileged um, parent. Mm. You talked a moment ago about perception and that it's one of the biggest things that we as humans do, that many of us could look at the same thing or be confronted with the same thing, yet have a completely different perception or view around that based on our own personality, values, beliefs, whatever else it is. You have helped top Olympians become gold medalists. You've also there teaching your beautiful nine-year-old son about the laws of attraction and abundance. Is there a similarity between the two to raise an Olympian champion or be part of that journey as well as raising an Olympian human, for want of a better word? Is there similarities in the two roles that you've played at such high levels? That's a great question, Kim. You know, there's only one formula for success, and I mean holistic success in all areas of your life. Now, I'm not talking about the accumulation of money, which it can be that, but that's not all of it. It's, it's health and fitness, happiness, love, all your goals, everything. There's one formula for that, and there's one formula for failing. The formula for failing is quite simple, and that is just don't use the formula for success. 
the formula for success is, is very clear. And the first step is that you have to reinvent yourself. You can't be who you are today and expect different results. That would be insanity. And in that, we have to um, manage how we think and feel differently because how we think and feel differently is going to determine how we act. And it's that action that's going to produce the result. So we all go through the same stuff. By the way, everybody's got fear. Everybody's got doubt. Everybody's got insecurity. The holistically successful people, we just learn how to manage it differently, even differently than we used to ourselves, which is where personal development comes in. The second step is that holistically successful people set what I call grand dream goals. Now, grand dream goals don't have to be big. They don't have to be expensive. It can be, but that's not the criteria. The criteria is the goals that give you the most amount of joy to experience. And by the way, when you're going for those grand dream goals, they're gonna, you're going to go through challenges because it's that challenge that prepares you to be prepared to, to handle that grand dream goal when you get it. Because otherwise, it can crush you if you don't personally develop yourself. And because of that, there we have to reinvent ourselves again. So the, the grand dream goal forces us into growth. And I always say it's never really about the goal. It's always about the growth that it produces. Then the next step is we take immediate and consistent action. Um, never set a goal that you don't take immediate action on because it goes in the back burner. It just never gets done. It fades away. Then we got to test and measure to make sure that we're on track with achieving that goal. Next would be is network, because if you're not networking, you're not working. So, you know, a team is always more powerful than an individual. Next would be contribution. And if you read The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace D. Waddles, um, you, know, you know, all kinds of spiritual texts, uh, um, The Richest Man in Babylon by George S. Clayson, you know, there's all, all this stuff about tithing. They have to give it away because it teaches your brain that you're abundant, but also is that activates the law of circulation is what something has to go out in order for it to come back. And then the last step is just follow through. You know, the fortune's always in the follow through. So it's the exact same formula for getting healthy and fit as get making money as raising a child or Olympic gold athletes, you know, is all those things is I just, the reason I produce the results with so many people that I do is I just basically run them through the formula. I'm just going to re reiterate it because I just love it. One, reinvent yourself. Two, yep. have a grand dream or goals that you're working towards, yep. which forces growth. Three, immediate and consistent action. Four, test and measure. Five, network. Remember your partner, and I love that honoring of your team. Six, contribution and the power of um, activating the ability to pay it forward, but also number seven, the follow through. Is that how you raised your beautiful Olympians with our gorgeous volleyball? Can you just talk us a little bit through that experience of going to the Olympics and seeing your beautiful girls raise their hands as the winners of the gold medal? Yeah, well, Kim, I was uh, doing a uh, speaking engagement. And by the way, this is when I was actually homeless in two countries because the company they brought me to Australia left me stranded, never paid me. So I was now homeless in two countries because I couldn't even fly home to be homeless. And I was doing free seminars to promote a paid seminar where I was going to make enough money to get back to the States. And this is in 1997 or eight in those days. And uh, I was in the Wool and Gabba in a restaurant. It was closed at the time. I mean, it was just not open for hours. It was closing hours. It wasn't a closed restaurant. 
And um, we were in this room that should have sat like 20 people and there was 40 in there. And my stage was like a two foot by two foot uh, section of carpet in front of the, the table that everybody's sitting at. And I had a little ghetto blaster for my music. And, um, and I said, who here remembers the person who stood on the third box at the Olympics? Everybody rush out to buy your book thinking, oh, gee, how'd you get third? And a girl stands up and she said, I was on the third box at the Olympics. I'm like, oh, uh, wow, you're a big girl, too, I can see. And she said, my name's Natalie Cook. I won bronze at the Atlanta Olympics, you know. And I said, ma'am, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I wasn't insulting you. I didn't even know you were here. And she said, no, the reason I'm pissed off is everything you said today was true. She said, would you take me to Sydney and help me win gold medals at the Sydney Olympics? And I said, game on. And she said, um, well, what do we do next? I said, team meeting. She said, uh, win. I go, right now. Never set a goal that you don't take immediate action on. So as you see in the process in this game. And um, so Carrie, one day, Carrie Pothars, the other player, called me up and she says, why do you think your goal settings any better than our goal setting? And I said, I don't, I don't understand the question. She said, well, we went for gold in Atlanta. We got bronze. So why is going for gold any different for you, with you? And I said, because we're not going for gold. We're going for diamond platinum. She goes, there is no diamond platinum. I said, oh, but there is. There's speaking engagement. There's best-selling authors. There's legends in your country. There's Hall of Fame. There's Australian Order of Merit. There's all the things that you really want that you think the gold medal is going to get you. We're going to go for those things, and we're going to have enough energy to blow through the gold medal to get to what you really want, because the gold medal is really only nothing more than a trophy. And she said, ooh, your goal setting is way better. And I said, so that's what a grand dream goal is. It's what do you really want to experience? Well, the, you know, we beat the best team in the world, the Brazilians. We were five points behind at match point. But one of the things that I trained the girls is to be gold medalists now. There's the reinvention. They had to buy display cases for their gold medals two and a half years before the Olympics. They had, because I said, if you really knew you were a gold medalist, wouldn't you have a display case that showed those medals often? They said, yeah, we'll buy them right after we win. I go, no, see, now you're saying if. That's different than I am. So I am. There's the reinvention. And so I made them buy the cases. They practice the national anthem every day. They practice standing on a podium, receiving their medals, waving to the audiences. This is all the stuff that that person would do. Well, when we were five points behind against the best team in the world, the Brazilians, that's when most people would say, oh, shoot, it's over. But instead, my girl said, we're the gold medalist. This is not how it ends. And they turned on the energy and they got the stadium on their feet and they're cheering, oi, 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 and the place is going berserk. And right then you could see the looks on their Brazilian players' faces saying, why do we feel like we're not winning just yet? And point by point, we took it away from two matches in a row and walked home to gold medals. Well, the girls these days, it's over 20 years later, um, they're uh, you know, gold medalists. They have posted stamps with their pictures on it, Australian Order of Merit, Hall of Famers, best-selling authors, both are moms, um, you know, millionaires, everything that we talked about. We did it right to the letter. But I'll tell you, some of the most gracious sportsmen, people who are ambassadors for people who want to live their dreams and follow their dreams. You know, I mean, the girls put their gold medals around more people's necks than you can count um, because they said, Kirk, you taught us that our gold medal is inside our heart. And this gold medal is to inspire everybody else. And that's what they do with it. So it's 
it's it's right down the it's right down the wire, Kim. Um, everything that I did with those girls is the formula. Why is it then, Kurik, that we have these amazingly talented athletes? I'm talking about men's sport in particular, where they get to the highest of high. They're in amazing teams. They're they're talented. They're fit. They're strong, and they screw up something. You know, a social activity or the way their attitude changes. How are you not involved with every team in each country? How is this not the norm for all these top athletes? Is it a mismanagement of our emotions or is it an inability to see that gold medal in your heart? Well, Kim, I believe this has everything to do with your amazing podcast is that the issue that they all have is the self-love issue. You know, they may know how to win a medal or a trophy or whatever, but their own self-love is not being worked on. I will tell you that years ago when the NRL was, you know, there was a lot of players going off the rails and fights and bars and drugs and all kinds of stuff that was going on. I met with, I went to Sydney and had a meeting with them. And I said, look, guys, you know, I'd like to put a program together for you guys. And they knew who I was because I also worked at the Brisbane Broncos and helped them win the premiership in the 99-2000 season. By the way, they had their best season ever and only lost one game and won the premiership. And Lottie DeCurie, whenever I bump into him, he has tears in his eyes. He said, man, you changed my whole life. And uh, Shane Webke and Gordon Tallis and all these guys I got to work with. Um, and the NRL said to me, he said, what you don't understand is that all this going off the rail stuff creates great media for us. So we don't care. I said, but you guys have, you have guys ruined their lives. And they go, yeah, but it's great PR for us. And I realized they don't want to change because this is about selling people's souls. Um, it's entertainment. And so, you know, that's why the individuals themselves have to say, wait a minute. And that's why I say is, you know, when you go to get your grand room goals, you definitely got to work on yourself because once you get the goal, it can crush you because you won't be balanced with it. So 99% of all lottery winners who win the money, it's destroyed their lives. It's not the money. It was their lack of relationship and balance with wealth because they didn't learn how to balance themselves by going through the trials and tribulations of creating wealth, including times when you lose it all and then you have to get it back. You know, those kinds of things that, that make balance with it. And so, um, it, it's, but I, every athlete I've worked with, every team I've worked with have all won. One of my um, superstars, his name's Tomati Ellison. He was a junior player on the Hurley, Hur, uh, the Wellington Hurricanes, became the team captain, went to the Mighty All Blacks, um, is a legend in New Zealand, and then ended his career uh, playing in Japan for a number of years where he wanted to. And now he's coaching at Wellington. And Tama T is one of those balanced, loving, uh, contributive guys you ever want to meet. But that's because, you know, he was willing to invest in himself in personal development and growing himself, him and his wife. By the way, when I first met him, he had no kids. Now he's got like five. I think he's creating his own rugby team. Um, it's just, uh, you know, but you'll see that with movie stars, rock stars and all the rest of the things. And by the way, I've worked with a lot of movie stars and I've worked with I used to manage a rock band that's now quadruplatinum. They're the sons of the legend Ricky Nelson. And, uh, you know, the boys are still very balanced and uh, drug-free and uh, millionaires and all those things that I promised I'd help them get. Uh, but I also worked on their own personal development so that their success wouldn't crush them. 
Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And I, it seems so simple the way you talk mm. about it. It seems so incredible. And that's the one thing that whenever I look at the All Blacks compared to any other team, of course, being a Kiwi, it's something mm. I feel very proud of. But they seem to have, there's a word in New Zealand, in Māori, and it's mana, which means respect, respect mm. of self, others, your environment, your whānau, your family, where you're from. There's just a really depth of of that word, yet it's it's four letters. Do mm. you think as humans, as white people, we are lacking that cultural identity, that real connection to a, a lineage of heroes? Have we forgotten that where we come from? Is it because we're not part of a tribe? What do you think from a spiritual, cultural perspective allows humans to grow and feel so safe and full of mana? I think it's, Kim, is because, you know, people want to segregate themselves and say, I'm a white person or I'm a this or that. Is For me, I go in the world, I'm home. And I've been all over the world. I'm home. I've been in Kuwait and I walk around the streets like I'm a local, you know, um, I obviously don't speak the language, but I, tr- I try my best. After a while, I screw it up so bad. People start speaking English to you. They're like, dude, don't even try that anymore. <laughs> like, I don't even know what the heck you're saying. Um, you know, the like the multi culture is, you know, they, they feel all their ancestors that have come before them and all their ancestors that come after them, they're responsible for it. You know, because their ancestors did everything they did to get them here. And now they're responsible to carry on that torch. And so, as you see, they... It's a responsibility, but because of, you know, having multi friends and, and all those things, I adopt that part of it. And I had, you know, uh, in Kuwait and Jordan, they have a thing called Arab hospitality, this warm, amazing service you get, no matter, I don't care if it's a kebab shop, it's unbelievable service. And I asked about it and sure enough, it's a cultural thing and I adopt that. And so, you know, um, and the funny thing is because of my skin color, and some of my features, people think I'm Mexican, people think I'm black, people think I'm, you know, Arabic. And uh, when I was over there doing speaking engagements, people said all my content comes right out of the Quran. You know, so I, I adopt uh, everything to, to make my life better and also to be a contribution to the planet because it's something I heard Oprah say once, which is if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And uh, so I'm always working on being part of solution, but it's, it's choosing the best parts of everybody and everything you come in contact with and adopting it as your own so that you become a more holistic person instead of I was born white. So, you know, Hey, I mean, it's just like in the States, you know, there's a, and again, I'm, I'm not racist by any way, shape, or form, you know, black people talking about slavery and all this stuff. I don't know if it's really hurting Michael Jordan too bad or Michael Jackson or Oprah or Denzel Washington to be black. I guess it's tough, but I got to tell you, be, being born from a Polish dad and an Italian Jewish mom, you know, I've had Los Angeles police officers put their knee on my neck and their gun to my head as well. So you don't have to be black to go through that. My point being is that if you take responsibility for your life and say, you know what, I was born maybe in an underdog situation, but I'm going to make something out of myself because this is not going to be my condition. This is not going to be my destiny. And I'm that guy. I grew up in the streets of Chicago. You know, it wasn't me. Um, I grew up knowing how to fight and alcoholic mom and an alcoholic stepfather and brothers and sisters. You didn't like me very much because I was always known as the weird one. 
Um, and I certainly wasn't born with a gold spoon in my mouth, but I've worked on myself to make myself something and adopt those things, including spirituality from, you know, all levels of it to see that we're all the same. I mean, we all have it if we look for it. We're all limited, though, if that's what we want to see. And I say, you know, look for the depth and look for the abundance and you find it and find the beauty in everyone. See that everybody has a gift for you and that you have a gift for them and make sure you bestow your gift and make sure that you open your mind and your eyes to see what gift they have to give you. Ah, so true. And for the person listening to this, the, the, the man who's lost or the, the mom that's in the middle of three kids, life's busy, hardly any time to listen to a podcast, let alone do something for themselves. They've got the story, the drama, the throes of all and every challenge financially, maybe even health-wise, all of these things. How does the person snap out of that to actually take on the things that you're saying? Is it reading more? Is it listening? Is it reading what you've got to say? Is it finding a mentor, a coach? Is it What is it that, that because the person listening to this or wanting someone to listen to this particular show has something in here for that person to hopefully see what they see, which is that gift that you're talking about. How do we help someone see it? How does someone hear that this is possible? Uh, Kim, you know, I would say is that, you know, because there's, you know, we all have habits. Everybody has habits. And a habit's not a bad thing. It's just a habit. And so we can have empowering habits, disempowering habits, um, and neutral habits. Well, the key to making your life better is to take some of your neutral habits and turn them into empowering habits. So if you drive to work every day the same way, well, it's a habit. It's not really hurting you or helping you. It's just a habit. Well, imagine if you listen to this podcast as you're commuting to work every day. Well, now you've taken a, a neutral habit and turned it into an empowering habit. And then it would be taking some of your disempowering habits and turning them into empowering habits. So um, smoking, as an example, is a hand-to-mouth habit. And that's why when people quit smoking, a lot of times they go to overeating because they keep putting their hand to their mouth. And then they go, well, I'd rather be a you know, a thin non, a thin smoker than a fat non-smoker, and they go back to smoking. But if you ever see me, as you know me, Kim, for a long time, is I always have a bottle of water with me. Matter of fact, I'm sitting here in a park bench, and I got my bottle of water next to me because for, after a helicopter wreck, I used to smoke cigarettes for two years. And so what I did is I took that hand-to-mouth habit and keep a bottle of water in my hand. And the funny thing is, when it's in your hand, you'll drink it. Well, I took a, a disempowering habit, smoking cigarettes, and turned it into an empowering habit, which is hydration, drinking lots of water. And also spending that money on cigarettes. Well, imagine just taking that money and keep spending it, just spend it on an investment account, you know, where that thing that used to kill you is now making you wealthy. So there's little things that you can do in the time that you have right now where you can empower yourself. When I used to, and I still do this, by the way, but what really turned my life around is that you know, in Los Angeles, when I used to work in the movie industry is you're going to be in traffic a lot. Like, you know, I know you've been to LA. It's, it's traffic you can't imagine on this side of the world. And so, you know, like I remember getting uh, an audio program that might have eight cassette tapes in it. And I would take one cassette tape and I would listen to it for a month solid, nonstop. And if I was in a car for two hours, it just kept playing over and over and over and over because I didn't want to hear it. I wanted to master it. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to sound like those people. I wanted to think like those people because the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your communication. First, how you communicate with yourself and then how you communicate with others. So that's why I wanted to constantly have that communication in my head. Because if you don't, the garbage seeps in, the depression seeps in, the, the what everybody else in the masses, the you know, saying the news is saying and all the rest of those things is, you know, um, instead fill your head and your heart with the stuff that will get you farther in life. Well, however you do that. I mean, so if you're washing the dishes, you could, you know, um, you can see how old I am. I'm going to say have a Walkman on, but that, people don't know what that is anymore. You know, have an MP3 player on and listen to a podcast, listen to personal development, learn a foreign language, learn about business, but learn something that's going to change your condition and do it consistently because nobody goes to the gym once and works out and thinks you're buff for the rest of your life. So it's not what you do once in a while that counts, it's what you do consistently. And all of a sudden you'll notice that you're thinking differently and then you start acting differently and then you start changing your condition. And little by little, after a while, you're going, wow, my life is a little better. And then, wow, it is pretty much better. And wow, it's great. And it changes. And that's how I got from helicopter wreck and dark depression and drugs and gun in my mouth every night to who I am today was it wasn't a, you know, one step at all of a sudden there. It was like the Michelangelo method is that he has a piece of granite. He's not going to hit it with a sledgehammer and a statue of David comes out. It was all the little chips that made a masterpiece. It's the same thing, but before you know it, you're feeling way better and your condition starts to change. So it has to be consistent. Yeah, I do. Oh, I love you. I really appreciate you. And I know that we've both been to people like Anthony Robbins. You've met him. I know that you've met some incredibly outstanding people. And mm. and I love the fact that you really have become known as the transformer. Um, you're a great speaker. You're a great husband, partner, you're an incredible dad, son, friend, all of the things. If there was one thing that you would tell your 15-year-old self today, what would that be? That's, you know, it's going to be okay. And all the stuff that you think you're worrying about right now isn't all that important. You know, so just keep looking towards the future and, you know, uh, have fun. Don't miss it. And live your life to the very fullest. Now, however long that is, pull all the stops out. And, you know, the funny thing about that, Kim, is that's really how I've gotten to where I am, is that I've always had counsel by my 90-year-old self, who's always told me that, you know, this is not how you die. So, you know, get over it. And, you know, I mean, I've done 115 skydives and I fire walk and all the things I do. And, you know, every time I got in a plane, I was terrified. And I would just remind myself, hey, this is not your story. You ever see the movie The Big Fish, Kim? Yeah. It's, uh, um, it's one of my favorite movies, you know, because it's about this guy who, uh, Albert Finney, who tells all these yes. stories about his life. And then on his death, you find out that they were all true. That all these, you know, it was just, it was a thing of his life, a testament of his life. And I think, um, and, you know, early on when he was a kid, he looks into the witch's eye. And she's, if you look into her eyes, she's going to tell you how you're going to die. So his whole life then, once he saw how he was going to die, instead of made him fearful, made him live to the fullest because he realized um, this is not how I'm going to die. And so then he would live his life to the fullest. And so because I'm that visionary about where my life's going to go, um, it's been that thing of I'm okay. I'm not going to die here. So 
live. Just don't do stupid stuff like get drunk in a car, which I, I've never I've never done that ever. Let somebody else drunk when you're driving those kind of, when they're driving. Um, I've always been responsible that way because I wanted uh, to give myself a shot at life. Isn't that a beautiful line? Give yourself a shot at life. Mm. I think we get so consumed with the drama and the story that you were talking about at the beginning or thinking we're the only ones instead of looking at all of these things as an opportunity for development. And I always have done the same as you for every drama or thing that's happened either with my kids or my life or money or whatever. I've always said to myself afterwards, well, there's some more great content for my next book or my next speech or my next podcast. So thank you for for being the soul that you are. Is there a quote that is one of your favorites at the moment by any chance? Uh, Well, I would say one of my favorites is that in order to fly, you have to let go of the world that you're hanging on to. You know, if you're a beautiful eagle that's, you know, has this wingspan and can soar, well, if you're hanging on to the very tip of a mountain, I don't care how high up you are, that's not flying. And so in order to fly, you got to let go of the world that you're hanging on to. I love it. I love it. And sweetheart, if anyone wanted to get hold of your book, um, how would love respond? If anyone wants to know about the new book, which I'd love to talk about in a moment, hmm. what's the best way that they can connect with you? Uh, um If you want to email me, it's curic at curicashley.com. By the way, if people write me, I actually write back. Um, people are always in awe that I actually write everybody back, but I do. And, uh, as long as people aren't just telling me pages and pages of drama, um, but, uh, also obviously Facebook and Instagram and all those things. Um, how would love respond is I'm the new copies are coming out. I think the end of July, cause I'm literally out right now, which is a wonderful problem to have. I, um, I'm in my seventh printing, which is, I'm in awe of, you know, as you know, Kim, when you write a book, you hope that somebody will read it. I think there's over 60,000 copies that are out there now, which I'm just in awe of. And the feedback I get from it is every day from somebody saying how much that book has changed their life. And uh, I, I sometimes wonder how I wrote it just because I read it and I go, man, that thing is, that's good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud. I'm like, wow. You know, but it, I put my heart and soul into it. And that's why I'm writing again. It's, it's taken me all these years to really formulate the story I want to tell. Cause I can't, I can't write anything close to how would love respond because it would be like a sequel and that's not reinventing myself. So this next book is a story. And so it's, it's challenging me again. It's because it's another style of writing that how would love that's different than how would love respond. How gorgeous. Are you going to tell us the title or is that something we oh, have sure. to wait no. for? It's, it's called the mystical mentor. And uh, it's about a, yeah, it's about a gentleman who um, is uh, distraught. His life is taking a lot of bad turns and he's going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco in the middle of the night. He makes sure that nobody is out there. Um, That's so nobody will stop him. And he's just about to launch over the rail and he hears a voice and there's a, there's an older gentleman who is standing on the bridge now who talks him down and becomes his mentor. And it, it's the story of this, this guy and his mentor and how uh, um, he changed his life. Oh, I cannot wait. Any ideas on when that's going to be out? Uh, I'm going to be complete. I have a, I just hired an editor out of the States because again, is find somebody to hold you accountable. 
You know, when you're your own boss, it's really easy to, you know, watch Oprah. (laughs) I I didn't know if she's on anymore. But uh, what I mean by that is, you know, uh, my editor expects, you know, chapters out of me by a certain time. And so, you know, holds me to that higher standard and accountability. And she's the perfect fit for me. Uh, Helps me really with the creative uh, juices and bouncing ideas off each other. So I say the book will be completed by the end of the year, and then I'll publish it through my own publishing company because uh, I bought the rights back to How Would Love Respond after uh, they had it for a number of years and started my own publishing company just to get my own book out. Um, And then I'll do the audio version just like How Would Love Respond and the Kindle version, those things. Uh, you're amazing. And and just before I thank you fully for your time and also all the incredible messages and, and the love that you truly do bestow on this planet, could I ask you one last question? Sure. The state of the world in which we're in right now, so many differences of opinions as to whether we should do something or shouldn't do something, governments making decisions on behalf of health people, health people up in arms about the way governments are doing things, the news, the fear, the everything that if you chose to get bombarded and sucked up into the vortex of that could quite frankly create nothing but despair and fear. What would your advice be to all of us in this crazy little world? And why do you think it's happening to us all right now? Well, Kim, if you read the Bible, nothing's really changed in thousands and thousands of years. You know, some people get it. Most people don't. You know, there's always going to be the two sides, the you know, um, majority and the minority. The law of polarity says that both have to exist, good and evil. You can't have one without the other. The one thing that has changed since the times of the Bible is that information travels faster and, you know, it's more prevalent. Anybody can be a newscaster now just with social media, you know, and and that's where fake news comes from. People just making stuff up. But governments since the early, early days have always controlled people through fear. You know, religion has controlled people through fear. The Egyptians used to change gods. Because when people stopped fearing the gods that they were, because they, you know, they weren't being punished for their, their you know, naughty things that they were doing, they would change the gods because it would create new fear and it would control people. So if you study history, you know, fear. And so, um, you know, in the 70s, we had herpes come out because, you know, and we're, oh, God, you know, and we found out it was a cold sore. And then it was AIDS. Well, guess what? AIDS has never been cured, but you don't really hear about it very much anymore because the fear factor has gone down and then it was SARS and bird flu and now it's COVID. And then once we're not so afraid of COVID, now it's another strain of COVID. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but the living fear, you know, I mean, because then we become part of the problem versus, you know, if you're afraid of something happen, keep yourself healthy, make yourself healthier than ever before and make sure you get active. Um, 9-11, you know, the planes hitting the world trade center and stuff is, even New Yorkers became friendly people because they realized at any moment life can be over and more precious. So they are friendlier and politer and kinder still to this day. So terrorism actually failed because it didn't terrorize us. It made us more loving people. And so it's not about what's happening. It's what are you going to do with what's happening? You know, are you going to do something that's going to make your life and everybody else's better? Or are you going to buy into it and make it worse? You know, people fighting over toilet paper. It's like ridiculous. Why don't you tear the 50 roll pack 
in half and take 25 rolls and give the other person 25 rolls and everybody's got a soft bottom. Um, you know, by the way, the funny thing is toilet paper was all gone from the shelves, but facial tissues were still there. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, crazy. I'm like, why don't you just buy boxes of facial tissues? My bottom likes the softer ones. <laughs> You know, and, 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 you know, everywhere I go, Kim, my thing is, how can I make a person's life better and their day better? And so I ask people, how's your day going? And, you know, people burst into tears in the grocery stores. When you're the first person who's even asked me, you know, people are being so rude. I, I'm like, you know what? Somebody loves you and cares about you. And also is I'm grateful that you're working so I can buy groceries. You know, you're on the front line here working is, you know, focus on yourself as being part of the solution as a contribution to the planet and will make the planet a better place. That's why Buddha says, be the change that you want to happen. Can't thank you enough for your incredible insights, your teachings, your amazing and beautiful delivery. I'm so grateful and so blessed to have you on the self-love podcast. And I know that every single person listening to this would want to give you a big hug down the line if that was possible. But imagine, you know, 5,000 people just all giving you the biggest squeeze of your life right now and just thanking you wholeheartedly, Kurek, for for being a champion for change, for honoring the challenges, the tragedies, the, the circumstances that can make and break us, but also can truly create us. And I want to thank you for being a creation of example, a creation of possibility, and certainly a creation and connection to love. Thank you so much for being with me in this last hour, beautiful Keurig. Oh, thank you, Kim. I'm honored. And if you ever want me back, you know, I'm, I'm always there and we got to catch up. It's been, I think the last time we saw each other was on a plane. <laughs> we were flying somewhere. Yeah, actually, New I Zealand. we caught it. Was it New Zealand? Yeah. Oh, it was such a precious. I remember seeing you from a distance and going, oh my gosh, there he is. It was so cool. <laughs> so cool. Love to your beautiful boy and your family, you. to gorgeous thank Julie. You. I'm really grateful she said that. I do always say, imagine if you can't ask how would love respond, imagine putting on a pair of glasses that only saw love. What would you see? And I really do appreciate the work that you and I do around the power of love and the way that we can create and manifest and share and more than anything, continue the evolution and the ripple effect of what it is when we take care of ourselves and love ourselves wholly. Thank you so much, beautiful Kurek. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family. And head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.